Laugh Factory in from everywhere else. Um, I'm your hostess, Maya. This is Heather. Hi. Um, and today we're really excited because we get uh, the legendary Eddie Brill to join us on uh, the podcast. And Eddie, yay, you made it. Eddie. Hooray. I'm alive. <laughs> I want to introduce also Felicia Chappelle and Mike George. Uh, Hello. So nice. we're really excited that you joined us. How are you holding up during the pandemic? I'm all right, you know, I'm like I said, I'm still alive and all I could do, you know, I miss being doing stand up live, of course, that's the thing that's killing me. It's the middle of March is the last time I did a show and there's been a couple of Zoom things that are shows that haven't been really satisfying, but uh, you know, I was supposed to do something um, at the end next week and that got moved to the end, first week of October. So fingers are crossed that there's gonna be this gig. So I just miss it so much. Other than that, I'm writing every day and what else can I do, you know, just smiling, walking around the great New York City and what else, you know, now right. I'm with you guys. Are you in the right. city? Yeah. Or are you yeah, I'm, I'm in the East Village and I've been here for a long time. Actually, wow. this week it's going to be big, I, since I graduated college, I moved here August 23rd is my big anniversary. Yay. Yeah, you came Yay. from Boston, right, Eddie? Yeah, um, I was in college yeah. at Emerson. Yeah, yeah, you... Yeah. you what yeah, can yeah. we can we ask what the anniversary is or do you not want to say how many years um, oh well here's the crazy story when i was a kid i lived in brooklyn i was born in brooklyn you know and uh <laughs> and we and my parents were uh, got divorced and we were going to move to hollywood florida and i didn't really want to make this move i'm glad i did eventually but i didn't really want to make the move and i started a diary that day the only diary i think i've ever had and i remember the date so clearly because it was the first front first page in the diary big letters and numbers august 23rd 1970 that's how old i am so august 23rd 1970 and i was just not happy i'm 11 years old and i'm just don't want to go and you know every time the book opened august 23rd 1970 so it was burned in my head i lost the book of course through the years so i went to florida <laughs> junior high school high school in florida college at emerson and I stayed in the summer to teach. And I finally said, you know what? I'm going to move back to New York. All my friends are there. My father's there. My sister just moved there. I was a big fish in a small pond in Boston. Get me out of there. Come to New York. So I'm driving a U-Haul with all my stuff. And I look at my watch. And I had the date on my watch in those days. And it was August 23rd, 1980. So oh, without, wow. without planning it, I wow. moved back to New York 10 years to the day that I left it. And I actually like freaked out. I had to pull over the side of the road on 95 for a little bit just to be like, oh my God, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, okay. so it's 40 years I've been in this uh, neighborhood, you know, back in this neighborhood. Wow. So now that makes me wonder about your internal comedy clock. Like if your internal clock is that well honed, then your comedy huh? timing will be like exactly how you do your work. Is that yeah, real? Well, I, I, I think that it, that is an, uh, I think in comedy, you have that no matter what. You either have it or you don't. And, but you can develop that and be aware of it, and it becomes acute. So, uh, it's, so I think it's very cute. Yeah, I think yeah. Yours is locked <laughs> in, obviously. <laughs> Gauging from yeah. that story, it must be completely locked in. Yeah. It's well, tell good. us I remember about, you've been such a You've been such a great like, big brother to every comedian that I've ever known. You've always been like the leader of creating such a camaraderie of comedians like joining together for like, are you going to Eddie's and playing cards? Like he's always been like, and, and we were just laughing about the Godfather. You kind of are a little bit of the Godfather <laughs> our, our comedy circuit where like Eddie, Eddie hey. will squash everything. <laughs> I'll, I'll Talk to care. Eddie first. Talk to <laughs> Eddie. <laughs> you gotta go through me. <laughs> Your career is so rich from, you know, for not even just with the Letterman and all the other things that you've done. Um, I, you were telling me when we had lunch last about your experience with like Joan Rivers and people that were just in your life. Could you just tell, give everyone else here some of the uh, beauty of your career and all that you've done and how you started? And No. No, of course. <laughs> weird. The end of you to go, no, I don't think I gotta go. Um, Sorry. Yeah, I'm out of here. No, you know, as far as the uh, camaraderie thing, my mom, first of all, was the funniest person in our family. And, you know, all of my brothers and my sister, we were all, you know, very funny. And because we had to be, our mom was so hilarious. And she was the kind of person who, you know, if there was a, a thing going on, it happened in our house. She would make the food, she'd put the people together. 
uh, people run away from home. They come to our house. It was always, <laughs> you know, it was, that's, it was because of my mom is why I've always had that sort of, you know, that sort of, you know, my brother's the same way. Um, we all, we take care of everybody else and, and it's a nice thing. So, but our family was always like that. I remember when I was a little boy, you know, like a TV show would make a premiere. Everyone would come to our neighborhood and from my neighborhood would come to our house and sit in the living room and all watch it together. So it was kind of, you know, I've always had that kind of camaraderie thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I never, you know, and the, my parents loved comedy and they would go see comedy shows. And, and uh, one of the greatest moments of my childhood was I was, uh, my parents had, we were in a hotel, my sister and I, and my parents had uh, come up from seeing Buddy Hackett and they were laughing as they walked through the door. And what makes it interesting is they were in a hotel where he was performing. They saw the show, they paid the bill, they went up the, through the lobby, up the elevator to the room and they were still laughing. That's oh. how much they were laughing. And I never, wow. I never saw my mom so happy. Um, you know, I'll never forget the, the look, the feeling that, she, and, and I kind of wanted to make her laugh like that. You know what I mean? That's I nice. always dreamt to, to do that and to make her laugh. So she was a really big supporter and a fan and loved, always supported what I did. And um, my father was a little rougher about it at the beginning, but eventually he became a huge fan. R Don Rickles actually said something very nice about me on TV and he, Rickles was my father's favorite comedian. So wow, that wow. solidified everything. Wow. <laughs> and he heard Rickles say, oh, Eddie wow. Brill, I love Eddie Brill or whatever. And my father like cried and you know, all that kind wow. of stuff. So, so yeah, and Joan Rivers is, uh, you know, I mean, there's a million stories, but Joan Rivers was an incredible person in my life. One night I was at Stand Up New York and myself and uh, I think Judy Gold and Rhonda Handsome and, and somebody else, we were on a show. And after the show was over in the back of the room was Joan Rivers. And she, we sat with her for two hours and she told us a million stories, but what was cool about her, she wanted to know our stories as well. It was, it was like a bunch of comics sitting around. She didn't make us feel like, oh, I'm Joan Rivers and you guys are my, you know. She was down to earth. <laughs> very down, very down to earth. Wow, that's great. So, so I know the year 1997 because I was about to do my first Letterman appearance and I was in the club in Milwaukee, the comedy cafe, and I was at the airport heading home and there was Joan Rivers at the same gate flying home. She had worked the palace, you know, whatever they have in Milwaukee, and I was working the small club. So I didn't want to bother her, but I said, I just got to say hi and thank her for being so nice at Stand Up New York that time. And she was like, you know, oh, yeah, I remember. And I don't think she did, but she was like, I, you know, I, it was so nice, you know. And I just said, I just want to let you know that I'm doing my first big television appearance and I'm very excited. And she said, oh, that's terrific. And so anyway, we get on the plane and she's sitting somewhere else, I'm sitting somewhere else. And during the flight, she gets up and she taps the woman next to me and says, will you mind switching seats with me? So the woman said, sure. And, um, and then Joan sat with me and she said, all right, let me hear the set. And she went over the set wow. with me wow. and gave me <laughs> a bike, cool. which I used then. And you know, a lot of stuff about nonverbal communication and how to use your body and, and not to just rely on words and talk wow. about how Jack Benny was, that was what he did. And, wow. and it was really great. So, you know, I, when I was on doing the show, I felt her there. And I had a couple other people like David Brenner and people like that, just really generous, but she was amazing. Now, a few years later, I was hosting an event on the stage of Saturday Night Live. And it was a party for like New York Magazine or something like that. And it was star studded audience. And every and I was just talking to the crowd before the event started, sort of a warm up kind of a thing. And um, it was really star studded. And every time someone would come in late, I'd do some crack about, you know, then you ever have a watch or, you know, whatever those kind of lines are. And everyone loved it. And they, I think people got up and walked out and came back because they wanted to get, you know, they, they wanted me to trash them or whatever. <laughs> so about 20 minutes into it, Joan Rivers walks in late and so everyone looks at me like okay get ready you know what are you gonna say to Joan you know and I actually said you know what I know you guys want me to trash Joan but let me tell you the story and I told them that story about her on the plane and they all stood up and gave her a standing ovation and she was just like the whole crowd of all these famous wow. people stood and she wow. was so touched by that it was really wow. a nice moment so it was my way of thanking her for being so 
generous to me. You know, it's very, wow. very lucky. I've been, a lot of people have been very generous to me and I appreciate it. Well, I think you've been the same for other people too, you know. I think comics do that for each other. Yeah. I think, I believe yeah. that. Right. Yeah. That also humbly speaks on how potent you are because there's a certain thing when you're on stage where you can, you can, you can enjoy the audience in a way where you can actually get them to stand up or you can kind of orchestrate a laugh and you can kind of look for that high pitched laugh and be like, I want that laugh again. And so that's like a very powerful addition to writing. Uh, yeah. I'm impressed. Um, yeah. Very. <laughs> yeah. Someone had sent that. me, someone sent me a, a, a video recently where Howard Stern was interviewing Trevor Noah and Trevor Noah was talking about Dave Chappelle and said, uh, you know, how am I going to go on stage? You're Dave Chappelle and all this kind of stuff. And he said, you know, what's great about you is you're interesting and people remember you. That was a kind of thing. And that's, I always thought about that. It's like, you know, I, people might not remember all my jokes, but I think they'll remember, they won't forget that I was that person. They might say, oh, they don't know my name, but that guy, I'll never forget him, you know, or something right. like that. Well, you know, uh, Eddie, I, I opened for you in Canada, in Montreal. You remember, you would not remember me, but it was a, uh, uh, comedy works member Jimbo in Montreal. Of course, yeah, what a great phenomenal yeah. room. Yeah, so I opened for you like, I mean, this is in the 90s and uh, you yeah. were, I was telling, uh, I was telling Mo, you were incredibly gracious, gracious. I was a very young new comic and you were very kind and gracious. And I remember you're, you were asking the audience, you know, lyrics that didn't, uh, that didn't make sense, you know, like he's got oh, a chicken. That, that's ride. a long remember time. That? Yeah. Yeah, he's got a do. chicken. Ride. He doesn't care. Why yeah. would he care? He's running a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> that was your bit. Oh, wow. What is it? No, it was like, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Eddie, but it was like the, it was, it was sort of mocking, like how, you know, people make up, like, you know, uh, Lucy in the sky. What is it? Excuse me while I kiss this guy instead of, right. Yeah. Me. There was a whole bunch of like those, that kind of, I haven't, I, I don't even remember half of them. Oh, it's I a million years ago. I was in San Francisco uh, a few years ago and someone yelled out a bit and I went, I forgot how, how it goes. Do you remember it? And the guy remembered it and he did it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was great. Yeah, yeah. We well, were definitely memorable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely memorable. What was it like, Eddie, in the 80s in New York comedy? Like coming um, up? I, I started in, in, when I was in college in Boston, I was an improv group and I was the late 70s. And I went with a uh, college with a very a bunch of very very uh, talented people who eventually became very very famous, and so we were doing well. And then Stephen Wright was in school with us, and he was doing stand up right after school was over. So we would go watch him do stand up, and that's when we started doing it. So in like 1981, I did a little stand up, but I didn't stick with it. And then in 1984, I was already back. I had moved to New York, like I said in 1980, a comedy uh, club was forming and they asked if uh, I would run it. And cause I ran the sketch group in, in college. And uh, the club was called the Paper Moon and it was underneath this restaurant. And with that restaurant eventually became the Boston Comedy Club. Yeah, yes. Oh wow. Uh, it was the Paper Moon, it was downstairs. And we turned it into this incredible place. It was run by comics. And Colin Quinn and I sort of ran the place and we really treated everyone really well. We just knew. Is that why you had the Stephen Wright picture on the, uh, uh, always on the Boston? Because I always remember Stephen Wright's face. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I st we're, still, we're still best friends. We're still wow. laugh, like little kids when we're together. It's really nice. Wow. And so the situation came up with this club. You know, we built a, like a, a space for the comedians to hang out. And, you know, we, we had a lighting person and we had a, you know, we had the sound system redone. And we also paid more than the other clubs on purpose. You know, we split pretty much the door with the comics. So everyone made some decent money. And uh, so we treated everyone really well. And then it just, it got to a point. So that was the 80s, 84 to 88. Wow. And in 86, the end of 86, I did Star Search, which was, you know, like it was, you know, it, it got me to then. LA. It, yeah, it was Star Search was huge. Egg McMahon, yeah. right? Yeah, Egg McMahon. <laughs> and um, so I started living half the time in LA and half the time in New York from 87 through 90. And so, but New York in the in the 80s, it was very, it was, you know, it was very raw, but there was a lot of incredible comedians coming through, you know, and then I, uh, Paper Moon was right down the street from NYU. So Adam Sandler was going to NYU and he would come in and work out and, 
then Dennis Miller eventually was on Saturday Night Live and he would come work out material and, wow. you know, Brett Butler was kind of starting out. So, we, you know, again, if I, I found a sheet of paper with all the comics and it's like a laundry list of some wow. of the greatest comics in the world <laughs> wow. and we're all kids together and it was really nice. It was very creative and everyone looked out for each other. And if someone had a bad set, you know, you took them aside and you just, you know, said, keep going, you're hilarious. And, you know, we, there was no, I mean, there, there was very few jerks, you know, that right. you would have to really be, you know, dismissive of. But we, we knew who, you know, that everyone, we respected everyone, even if you sucked, because I sucked, everyone sucked. So you have to, you know, you you respected everyone for at least getting on stage and then made them feel good about it. And that's how people made me feel like, you know, bigger comics come up to me. And, and in my life, I've had, you know, just a who's who of comics come up and tell me that they love my material. And I don't, you know, I don't have to, you know, that's the thrill of my life. Eddie, what did you think about the uh, show that was written for the Boston? I mean, like what you're telling me is that story should have been written. Like what you're talking about, like, I would have loved to have watched that on a series as opposed to, you know, I mean, not to say anything against uh, uh, the show that was written for the Boston, but this story- You mean the, the film, Paper the Moon. Boston film about no, when Stand Up stood out? Or? No, the Boston Comedy Club, you know, the show Crashing. that was on HBO, Crashing. Crashing. Oh, yes. Crashing, right, yeah. No, it but, would have been nice, but I don't think a lot of people knew that, you know, we were forced to bring the comedy upstairs because the, these new owners came in and the comedy room was spectacular. We had, we had redid the whole place just for comedy. And then the new owners came in and they were, you know, they wanted- So when did Barry to, take it over? Like what, what? I gave it to him in 88. Okay. You know, that's when I decided I couldn't really book the club in New York. I actually, there's a guy named Rick Messina, who's a- Yeah, I remember, agent I heard that manager. name. And he was running the East End Comedy Club. And I asked him to take over because he was a New York booker. I said, take over the club. He was excited. And then he called me like a week later and said, you know what? I think I'm going to go to L.A. too and try to make it as a manager. And he did very well. That's he got, you know, Tim Allen right away and, you know, a bunch of great comics. So, so Barry in the interim, you know, I knew Barry. I helped Barry start out his business. I got him his phone system. I, I you know, helped him with comics. I... You know, I knew him for a very long time. And he yelled at me, he says, why did you give the club to Rick Messina? What about me? And I said, well, you live in Boston and this club's <laughs> in New York and Rick's in New York. And, you know, so when Rick called me and said, I can't do it, I called Barry right away. I said, Barry, you want it? It's yes. Wow. So, oh, wow. so yeah, people don't know that history that there was a yeah. club there for four years. That club, yeah. that history should be told. I think that's- I think yeah. so too. I, I'd like to see- you should, like see the, you should see the list of comics, you know, uh, it was just, you know, uh, just like early Judy Gold and Brett Butler on the same show, and Wendy Liebman's first ever show, and, uh, you know, some of the, the big time comics, Monica Piper, and, you know, from the old days, and then John Mendoza and Bobcat Goldthwait, and, you know, just everyone when they were young coming through New York, who didn't get to really work New York that much. I mean, we had Mario Cantone, who was an Emerson guy, Susie Eshman, who was an Emerson wow. person. I'm not Emerson, a New York person who we knew through Emerson people. Right. So it, there's a great history in that room. And uh, and we never got in the way. The comedy cellar was down the street and they, you know, we respected each other and we, it was never an issue. Like if they needed a comic and we had what, some. Was it, was it competitive with the comedy cellar back then as well? Not I, really. No, no? No, we were both selling out. So yeah. our room was about 120 seats. Their room was, I think, 175. And, uh, yeah. you know, there's enough people walking up and down 3rd Street. Why? Sorry. No, it's okay. I did three comics, you know. Um, Colin and I would switch off hosting each week. And then we wow. got some other people to do that. And that's wow. how we learned to be better comics. And then we'd bring in, you know, two comics to middle and a headliner kind of a thing. And wow. no one was really doing that except Caroline's. And right. that Caroline's was even coming to the Paper Moon to look at some of the comics. Because I was bringing in comics from L.A., San Francisco, right. you know, Boston, the people that weren't really working at Catch the Rising Star or weren't working at the comic strip because they weren't part of that New York clique. Wow. Right. Yeah. Sounds like you were very good at it, like running the club. Like you sort of, you, you knew how to manage a club, you know what I mean? And how to make it work. And not just in the sense of monetary, but also 
with people, you know, uh, managing people. Is that yeah, how, how do you want to be treated? You, you treat others like that and that, you know, I wanted, you know, sometimes that backfired on me in a, on certain occasions. Like when I was booking Letterman, I was the booker who was like the one, I, I wanted to be the booker that I wanted to, to work for. Like I, right. like when I would audition for a TV show, I never knew how I did at the end. They would come in, they'd leave, and you, you never knew. And I vowed that I would stay at the end of every audition with, and I took all the, all the paperwork I had, and I would meet every comic who wanted to meet after the show to go over their set with them and say, wow. here's what works and here's what doesn't work. And because that's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And because I, I auditioned for Letterman and didn't get it. And then I auditioned for Letterman with the same set and got it. And it was like, hmm, you know, so I did that. But, but the mistake I made was thinking that everyone wanted that. And it turned out a lot of, some, a lot of people just wanted to get the show. And if I didn't, if they weren't right for the show, they took it like, you know, fuck Personal. you. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Defensive, and, right. And I understand, you know, it's not, for, you know, you know, I understand how people work. But at the time I was doing what uh what i thought was what I, I would want and that's all i could do that's right all I that's really want. nice can i ask a dumb question that no one's ever been able to answer for me why <laughs> in new york why is it called the boston Co I, what is the story of that why in barry, new york barry's cl uh, company he was the boston company oh that was the name of his guy no one ever answered that and so when he came he decided to call it the boston comedy club and i still worked there and it was still fun okay. you know there was in between the Paper Moon and the Boston Comedy Club, the upstairs was called Only Joking for a very short time. Oh, wow. But that yeah. name didn't, very, didn't, didn't last. Only Joking. Very, <laughs> only joking. You, you, you know what I'm interested in? Sorry, I don't mean to monopolize, but just to quote, you had been talking about when you talked to Joan Rivers about, um, you know, don't just rely on what you're writing, you know, how, you're, how you move, what you say. You, um, you, know, you know, people auditioning for Letterman, giving them notes. Do you have a, and this might not be even a, the right way to ask it, but is there, um, not by any means a formula, but you know, some people are great joke writers and they're great. And then, but for some reason they don't land, right? The joke, they're up and you're like, I don't like how much of it in your mind, is it from performance and what you give and your body versus the actual words themselves? Is that a, I don't know if that's a, a fair question. Everyone's different and you can't have one rule that fits all. Um, you know, because there's a great example is Brian Kiley, the great comic who writes for Conan, who grew up with Conan in uh, Massachusetts. And he was a great joke writer, incredible joke writer, and was, was doing stand-up in Boston at the Ding Ho in, in the days of early comedy. And everyone loved his writing, but performance-wise, he was a little stiff. And he did it and did it and did it and did it. And after a long time, he became a great performer as well. So sometimes it takes a while to be a great performer. I, me, on the other hand, I performed like crazy. I was in all these comedy groups. And so I, my material was shit, but I performed the hell out of it. And I got laughs, laughs on stuff that, you know, just by performing really well. So you just, you know, the key is really is for someone to be as authentic as they could possibly be. And that's what I learned. And I learned it from this crazy analogy that I love about Michelangelo when they, he was making the statue of David and they asked him, how did you make this incredible David statue out of this block of marble? And he says, I just chipped away at the pieces that weren't him. Right. Wow. So then <laughs> I said, okay, let's get right. rid of, get rid of all the <laughs> shit that's not me. Uh, that's not yeah, you. Be honest, yes. be vulnerable, be, you know, use that as a strength. And of course, you know, I, I look, I love Pryor and Lily Tomlin and, and Carlin and Jonathan Winters, I guess would be in, you know, there's a million great comics, but of that era. And some were great performers and some were great writers and some were a combination of, mm -hmm. I just remember just to be your, as much as I could be myself. Cause when I first started, I did all the rhythms of George Carlin. Okay. And how can you have a word like this when this happens? And that's <laughs> who I was. Because I think as young comedians, we, we act like a comedian because we've never, we don't really know ourselves. And being on stage time is the only real teacher. And the only way to learn to be yourself is to be able to feel free enough to make mistakes, to not have the pressure to have to be perfect every time because mm -hmm. there's, there's no such thing really. 
Right, that's really cool. Do you, I mean, do you fall in love with mistakes? Like you're a writer, you deliver, you make the stage hot with other people on the mic. You know, how do you fall in love with mistakes? Because you have to have a lot of them to do all that. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it, to fall in love with mistakes because that's how you learn. If you, you know, if you're doing it right all the time, in a sense, you know, like, like Dave Chappelle, he was the <laughs> only comic I've ever seen to come out and get it right away. He told his truth and he never stopped doing it. And he never stopped. Where I, some of the greatest comics in the world, you know, developed, like, you know, I remember seeing Colin at the beginning or Chris Rock at the beginning, or, you know, like I said, Judy Gold or these kind of folks. And they're out there and they're just taking stabs at trying. And eventually they realize, wait a second, if I'm just myself, that's my most original, my most authentic self. And that's what's going to work for me. But then again, there's no rules. So like, if you, um, you want to be a character like, you know, Andy Kaufman or Lily Tomlin or... You know, Whoopi Goldberg, you know, from, I'm talking from that era, you know. Yeah, like look at Sebastian Maniscalco, is an incredibly talented person. And when he was first doing his comedy, it was mostly performance skills. And his writing joined his, you know, performance skills to make him one of the most, you know, prolific, not prolific, but the most popular comics in the world. And, you you know, it's, it's whatever works for you. And, but again, if you're Gilbert Gottfried or you're Richard Lewis, you know, you're a character. And although I think that pigeonholes you, it also gives you um, a brand that people can relate to and take that to the next level. Well, Eddie, do you think the love- more about you taking lumps. Like, what about your lumps? Like, how did you deal with the fact that like, okay, my writing's not great, but I know how to perform. I mean, how do those lumps <laughs> feel for Eddie? It was horrible, and it was, but and I was afraid. So I would always, at the beginning, I was always doing what I was sure about instead of trying. But watching Colin every week, because he would, he didn't care. He would make mistakes. Watching Dave Attell, you know, just going out there and just going out there and just doing it. And I learned from watching those guys. You know, I learned that you had to make mistakes. So I went out there. You know, I'm running this club, so I'm definitely going to work there. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to fire myself if I suck. And uh, so I had the wherewithal to go out there and make a bunch of mistakes. But then I go out to I went out to Los Angeles and I was working the comedy store. I was pretty much living at the comedy store. I was in the house right behind it, and it was my living room. And every night <laughs> I saw the greatest comics in the world every night i got to bring up richard pryor i got a note wow when i was on stage wow. when you're done bring up richard pryor and i was like <laughs> you know, good night i couldn't yeah wow. and he said something like some blah 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 to me and i just couldn't i was overwhelmed i couldn't believe it but i you know we were there watching the greatest comics in the world developing and even the big stars developing like roseanne barr was a great comic always was a great comic and then she became a star. And so you have to mix the fact that you're a big star and also keep writing and doing the great stand-up. So I just learned from watching and then letting go. And so, but back to what you originally said about the lumps and the mistakes and you learn to, you learn to treasure them and you learn to, and you have a much better life when you're not trying to be perfect all the time. Uh, there's no such thing as perfection. Right. I agree exactly. with you on that. What makes my, my, when yes, people ask yes. me, what do I look for in a comedian? I always say Nina Simone. The reason why, <laughs> the reason yes. why is she just had what someone would call God coming out of her. She just, yes. and every mistake, every, she, you, you went, she went below the surface and was deep mm -hmm. and rich and just wow. told her truth. Wow. And you, and I could see that in comedians and that's always been, what I look for in comedians, comedians who are not afraid to take chances. And also, you know, it's like, say you go on a date and someone is like, oh yeah, whatever you say, or I agree with you, or you, it's not, it's not yes. as alluring as someone who's like, look, I'm, this is, I'm cool as shit and this is who I am. And if right. you like it, great. And if you don't like it, somebody else will. That's much right. more alluring. Well, the same thing with comedy. When I see a comedian who's auditioning and they are like, fuck you, auditioner. You know, if you don't want to pick me, you're a loser. And I was like more attracted to that comment. Yeah. But do you find that's authentic? Yeah. I'm going to be saying that's not authentic. Yeah, because like the same thing with Chappelle, 
whenever he goes out on stage, people don't, a lot of people, there are people who don't like what he does, but he doesn't care. You know, I did a podcast a bunch of years ago called We're Not Here to Please You. And that title set me off. It's like, I'm not here to please you. So that's my attitude on stage. It's like, I'm not here to please you. If you're pleased, that's fantastic. But I'm not here to please you. I'm here to do, tell my truth or have my fun or do my thing. Right. You've, earned that, you've earned that place, though, as a comedian. Mm-hmm. When you're right. starting out, you can't do that, right? I mean... Why do you say that? What do you think? Um, because you, if you're not funny and you keep going, when do you say, I need to stop? Or as opposed well, Colin to... Colin Quinn is that example. It was, <laughs> we, were, we had a comedy club. We had a comedy club and no one was like, you know, you weren't getting a booking. You weren't going to get the Tonight Show out of performing at the Paper Moon. But Colin go on stage and just go up there and be who he is. Make mistakes. He would like, sometimes the audience wouldn't laugh at all. And he'd say, I'm going to turn around. And when I come, when I turn back around, I want all of you out of here. You know, he would just, just you know, he just took chances. And, you know, I... And I learned so, that. And that's, well, that's the development of it then, right? right? So let's say you continue to go on, but then there's a point where there are comics I've seen and run into Boston where, okay, you're not going to be funny. I don't care what happens. Five years, 10 years, you're just, you're not getting the point. Yeah. Um, so how do you, I mean, where do you put those guys as opposed to? Well, first of all, you respect them for trying, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. Yes. And you realize that if you give someone, you know, say, look, you know, look, I respect you for doing it. We're all in this together. There was one comic and um, I can't think of his name all of a sudden, but he was from Denver and I saw him and he wasn't very good. But the person <laughs> who ran the club said, I think he's going to be great. And I respected her. You know, I still respect her. She's incredible uh, who books the club. So um, eight months later, I saw him again and he was phenomenal. Right. You know, he right. had gone from, you know, just keep keep working out, working out. He was working often, getting stage time. You know, in New York, in, in the heyday when I was working, you know, all the clubs, I could do as many as seven or eight shows on a Saturday night. So right. you run and you, you know, you're... But that's why you're good, though, Eddie. I mean, yeah. because you're getting booked eight shows. That That's yeah. an indication that you're good. Right. <laughs> For the weekend shows. But, at the be- you know, see, my career is different because I ran a club. And I worked out and worked out and worked out. And when I went to Los Angeles, I already had, I came there with some, you know, bullets in my gun. And so all of a sudden I came out and people were like, oh, this guy's okay. So I'm different in that case. And then then I went to Europe because I wanted another challenge. And I went to Europe to work. And it's such an, at that time, late 80s, early 90s, it was such a better scene because these comics didn't have anything to shoot for like, for, you know, they weren't trying to get on the Tonight Show or they were just doing comedy because they loved it. And, right, the, and right. one thing I learned, which was really kind of creepy, is that American comics at that time were pandering so much that it was embarrassing. Like a comedian <laughs> would say, hey, let's hear it for the troops or they would get applause. <laughs> they would they get still applause do that. <laughs> or something they were not responsible for. Right, you know, right. And Colin even says it. We don't want applause. We want laughter. <laughs> right. you, know, we, you know who right, wants right, applause? Right, right. We're stand-ups. We want right. to laugh. So I went to England, and I, I, the first night, first line I said was, "It's great to be here in London," and it's so American. And some guy yelled out immediately, "Bullshit!" The first line, the first <laughs> line was his, and I just said, "You're right. It is a shithole, and it smells like urine." And then the crowd went crazy. <laughs> I was very honest in that moment. <laughs> and I was lucky because I was auditioning for the comedy store, which turned out to be the biggest venue there. So, um, and then I started talking to a lot of the comics and they said, you know, you Americans just don't stop getting applause for no reason whatsoever. Asking the crowd, you know, you know, give yourselves a round of applause for coming out tonight. They go, what are you talking about? People have gone out before <laughs> in their lives and they don't need, they don't need right. applause. 
themselves for going out. Right. They've done it many times before. <laughs> right. There's no, there's no a, a waitress at a, a Red Lobster's and like, give yourselves a hand yeah. for uh, coming to my table tonight. I think it's amazing. Oh, Red, I be, a Red Lobster, be, give yourselves a claw. It was yeah, give yourselves a claw. Yeah. Give yourselves a claw. Um, so, you know what, one thing, and I, I want to make sure others have, Heather, Heather, what do you want to ask something? <laughs> we should go. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I want you to. That's what I was, that's what I was saying. I oh, felt I like. Say, no, do you think that comedians today, though, since um, take as much care with the craft of comedy as they did uh, like previous decades and really with the, all the comedians? Oh, I do. I think there's so many incredible comics out there that just, you know, Taylor Tomlinson or Mark Normand, you know, uh, I, there's a million comics. I don't want to, you know, yeah. uh, you know, um, but there are so many great comics who just love the craft and mm -hmm. they're incredible at it and they get better and better each time I see them, you know, and those are just two examples. And I think that it's always that there's always a small percentage of people who are just geniuses, the tiniest mm -hmm. percentage. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, you know, the Chappelle's and, uh, you know, and then there's the, the next group who really work really hard and they're really great at what they do and they, they put the work in and all other kind of stuff. And then there's people working their way up to get to those other levels. Mm -hmm. So I think that it still continues on. There's some different stuff like, you know, the world is different where, uh, first of all, can't work at a club and you have to find ways to <laughs> communicate, you know, which is very weird. But, you know, there's a lot, you can be a successful, famous person because you have an interesting uh, uh, internet show. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, you know, that's, you know, you can't root against people for doing something that they made up. Like, you know, like the Dane Cooks, you know, people always yeah. trashed him, but he was uh, smart as hell for what he right. did. He I thought he was original. Himself. I thought he, yeah. he created something different. I mean, he was. Yeah. yeah. Well, when he started, I remember it being a sellout thing. It's like, oh, he's right. selling out. He's pushing it all on at the time, MySpace. And now. Everyone's like, hello, like whatever, yeah. Instagram, look at me, look at me. It's like, yeah. you know, and, 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 and yeah, yeah, he was sure. ahead of the curve. He was ahead yeah. of the curve. Well, well, that's the thing too, which I think someone of your level, when you're saying, just speak your truth, it's great. And I agree. But, you know, like Heather said, you know, when you're new, it's craft still, right? Like you can't, I've seen, and I don't know if this is what you're talking about, Heather, people go up and they try and just, like they want to have a cigarette and be Lenny Bruce, but it's just them bitching about, their car or whatever and it's not anything yet it's nothing right. and you don't feel any skill or craft you feel it's just and you're not connected to them no and you're not you're not connected to them you right. know there are comedians who have gone on stage that didn't make me laugh and i connected with them i thought they were incredible and knew that they would eventually be incredible because they always they were connecting right away but someone who goes and tries to be lenny bruce is, you know we already have lenny bruce we need right right you know, you know we need the next you we need you i don't want someone to say well you know i i have this comic and they're another masavia greer and i'd say well i want masavia greer and that's really what you should demand for yourself is to be the you know be your original self be your authentic right. self unless you want to play a character but within that character there's a whole bunch of you know pathos and all that other kind of stuff and vulnerability and strength that comes yeah, out of yeah. it you know we were taught um, as young, especially young boys, you know, that macho was important and it was everything. And, and really, there yeah. was really, it was insecurity. And mm -hmm. it, it was a big, huge, insecure world. So once you learn that the more vulnerable you are, the more strength you have, the more power, the more sexy that is, the more alluring yes. that is, once you, you know, that, and that only happens stage time, stage time, stage time, the more mm -hmm. you do it, you know, so if you see a comic going up there trying to be somebody else, you know, I, I cut them slack because they don't know what to do. They don't know to be themselves. They think that, you know, like when I started, I was George Carlin. When I, I remember doing a show with three great <laughs> comics, with other comics, you know, Brian Regan and say Jeff Stilson, who was a great writer who wrote for Letterman. And we were doing a show together and everyone got last. But, you know, we were all, we were, we were doing the best hits of other comics kind of thing <laughs> in, our, in our very young, very youth, 
Yes. Very yes. young era. But it's how you executed it, right? When I interviewed Carlin, he told me that he was trying to be Danny Kaye for many years. So it just right. you keep finding Never ends. person trying right. to be the next person, you know? Right. Danny Kaye was trying to be Chaplin. Chaplin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Chaplin was trying out. to be Danny Kaye. Yeah. And all the, way the bottom made line, if you're shaking from head to toe and you feel like you're throwing up, you got it. You, you got it. it. Yeah. Right. If you throw yeah. up, that's really authentic. That's good yeah, stuff. Yeah. Okay. No, it, it's interesting though because like if I'll sometimes watch on Instagram comics, and I do it on purpose. They'll have subtitles because they want you to turn it on, right? But right. I'm reading it to see does it read funny. And what I love is sometimes it's so not funny when I'm reading it, but then if I turn it on, it's hysterical, and that is craft. Kevin Meany was, you know, a comic. If you looked at his the writing of it, you would say, "What?" But right. He, he was a genius, you know. Right. It's like, what is that? I guess that's being your true self, right? It's through the yeah. lens of a stage. You have a very spiritual approach to it, which I love. Yeah, I mean, Eddie, too. Also, back then, you guys had a really deep love for comedy. Like, you just you weren't looking for the money or the fame, right? No. You Those are just, byproducts. Yes, right. But I would say, in my opinion, the younger comics today are looking for something. I mean, because you can you can go on YouTube, you can go, you can be famous in five minutes. Right. I mean, you can make them get a million hits. I'll make a million bucks. I mean, I I don't I I don't see the greatness today. I mean, that's my opinion. In my opinion, as I did back then like mm. the stories and the emotions and the feelings that comics would share and get laughter off of it, off of even pain. I don't feel that authenticity today from younger comics. But, you know, I think that like my generation saw it in Robert Klein or Richard Pryor and then that their generation saw it in, you know, vaudeville maybe, you know, Moms Mabley and the mm. Chitlin Circuit. Mm. And, you know, there was so, there was so many different circuits of, of performance, whether it was music and comedy, or just comedy, or vaudevillian, you know, uh, songs that were happening, or just a bunch of people sitting in a room, you know, telling the truth and getting in trouble for it. I just saw a great documentary on Mae West, who was really oh, wow. hilarious, and uh, and but because of the Christian right, um, they didn't want her to be able to be her authentic self, and wow. they they made her life miserable. And it and the extremism in our society in those right. kind of scenarios still exists today. Yeah, you know. So you yeah. have you have, we're constantly That's fighting true. that. We're constantly, and true. today we don't we could get away with a lot more than May West get away with. Right. Because if if we're popular, you know, there's a lot of comics that I don't think are the greatest comics, but they're usually popular. And I wish him luck, you know, I don't, right. you know, what am I going to do? I'm not going right. to wish them luck. Don't you think it's a little politically incorrect? Like everything is so sensitive today though, too. I mean, like you can't say anything without being like brought up or brought up on okay. charges or protested against. Chappelle went out and he started talking about drag queens or something right. like that. Oh yeah, he yeah. Got he got a lot of trouble that, for it. Yeah. He took a lot of hit. But he says he doesn't care. He stood he, up for it. He stood up for it though. He yeah. backed himself on it though. Yeah, yeah that, he, that, yeah. I thought he didn't his special. No, I, I agree. I thought he's special on that. I, I remember that and I thought and there's all this backlash and I thought it was brilliant because what he was, I got that he was saying is this is actually okay. Like he even had a, a moment where he sh he showed an image of the drag queen that he was talking about, who said, "Thank you for for not taking it so seriously." For saying, "I'm just a person. It's not right. just a tiptoe eggshell." It's like, no joke, whatever. And I just thought it was beautiful. And I was like, and because I knew some people who were offended, I'm like, "Well, you don't get it. Like, you don't right. get what he's trying to do. He's not trying to hurt anybody. He's not trying to right. be salacious and be like, I don't care. It's just like you're saying, his authentic self and." He, it was really, like, that's where you talk about the genius, you know, it's just like amazing. And, and then also you look at a situation like Kevin Hart, who, you know, yes. you know, everyone looks at him and he made these homophobic jokes and there's nothing smart or good about them. And he knows it, you know, he was when, you know, a lot of us start out, we do a lot of things that are ridiculous. And I look at some of my old material, I go, oh my God, that would be canceled immediately. You know, you know, jokes about breasts and jokes about, you know, different things uh, I don't even want to get into it but I would uh I would do this stuff but what happens as a human being we evolve 
And mm-hmm. I don't want, you know, I was, I like to celebrate how someone evolves yeah. as opposed to looking at their past and, and holding them against that. Mm-hmm. Because, Absolutely. You know, like someone yes. said something, and this is, I'm not political at all on stage at all, but someone said, you know, in 1977, Joe Biden, I go, that was 1977. You know, that <laughs> right. was 43 <laughs> years ago. Right. I think if Joe Biden hasn't evolved since 1977, then fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? right, right. But if he's evolved, like Kevin yeah. Hart has, is the yeah. sweetest, yeah. nicest, most yes. incredibly yes. giving human being you know i celebrate where where he's sure. involved so yes. our society should be you know my mom her her parents were you know very racist they're middle eastern and and, they, and they, today they'd be can be preyed upon for racism or whatever but they were bad and my mom when she was a little girl was kind of that way because her parents were that way and me okay. and my sister we beat the shit out of my mom, you know, vocally about, you know, <laughs> you know, we said, look, you know, we, this is wrong. And she learned from it and became right. the most, the, her comedy and her funny and her, it wasn't comedy, but it was her life. She, you know, I celebrate the, the woman she became, you know, I loved her for all, all along the way, but you know, we, as human beings, we grow up in a certain household, you know, there are a lot of you know, KKK people that we know how evil they are and we know that this goes on. But if you grow up in a house and everyone in your house is KKK and that's all you know, and those are the people you trust and are going to feed you and change your diaper, you're going to most likely have some of that in you until you get old enough to realize, hey, wait a second, this this is bullshit and it's time for me to get away from that. Right. Eddie, what, did you grow up in a tough part of Brooklyn, Eddie? Um, I grew up in a very protected part of Brooklyn. Because <laughs> uh, I remember seeing lot, you in the gym of... one time. I saw Eddie in the gym one time, and he was uh, boxing. And I was like, yeah. damn, this guy has a mean punch. So I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking yeah, you, like... You had, to be, you, you had to be tough, you know? But it was Bronx Tale. You know, I would go to the corner and, hey, Eddie, give me some Italian bread. <laughs> and then you go and you pick up the Italian bread and, you get, and they give you a quarter for doing that. And they pat you on the back and say, if you ever have any problems, you let us know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. so it, Brooklyn was, it was a tough part of Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, there was, you know, when you're a little kid, there's always that toughness and bullying and, and that kind of stuff. So you got to. Because I was like, you were such a sweet guy, but when I saw you in the gym that day hitting the bat, I was like, damn, this guy is Who is this guy? I love it. I love it. Get all the anxiety up. I'm so glad we're having this conversation because. You know, uh, right before the pandemic, I was like, I'm going to get to have lunch with Eddie Brill because I want to be, because I really want to improve. We were talking about like, what would be the difference and like going, doing late night and all these things. And Eddie was so quick to like, yeah, let's meet for lunch. And we had, and it was, it was such a pleasure. There's so many different stories and such a rich history and, and just uh, even learning, Mike, he was teaching me about like slowing down and mm. Don't eat, you don't eat your whole meal in one bite and let people chew on your material. And there's so many, so many wonderful things um, that um, I'm just so grateful that you're on sharing with us. Yeah. Which I learned, I remember I was doing a show in Buffalo with Margaret Smith, who was a, you know, a slow uh, wordsmith, kind of a Dimitri Martin, Stephen Wright, Mitch Hedberg kind of comic. And she, in my early career, she said, you're doing 35 minutes of material in 20 minutes. You're just rushing. And I said, and she said, you appear to be insecure and you appear to um, be afraid to let them laugh. So they're afraid to laugh because they're going to miss the next line. And that was a huge lesson for me. And then David Brennard and, Ju- and uh, Joan Rivers t- kind of told me the same thing. It's like, you know, the, the, the confidence, you know, to say things with your face and you know, especially on television, it's only three quarter shot. And so if you blink or you wink, whatever you do, you can say so much more than when you're performing at Madison Square Garden. It's a whole different kind of a opportunity. So you, you have this, you take the words out. Like if I, for instance, I want to make the audience work and I want to make them follow me. So instead of saying the word no, like say I said, I asked Maya to lend me $10. She said no. 
and the crowd would don't you know if i this word 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 you can be looking in your bag for something you know the whole story but if i shake my head no instead of saying no then you're forced to watch me because if you don't watch me then you don't know the end of the story you don't know the the results so by taking the words out and putting not because words are only one form of communication nonverbal is is everything you know it's, right it's a huge, it, it's a huge part of it. It's easier when you're starting out, though, to sit. The words you can memorize, the words you can just know. That head shake and the timing of that head shake and where to look with that head shake, that's a whole nother ball of wax, right? I mean, that's... Oh, my early cool. tapes, I sound like the Bee Gees. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> So fast and the quivering voice and... Uh, you know, it's just so horrible. I remember <laughs> laughing, not because I was funny, because I was so nervous. <laughs> what did you add first? So when you look at those tapes and you try to think back on how it evolved with the uh, etiquette and how it evolved with like getting the craft, what did you, how did you add the ingredients in? Like, I, the I, 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 it's a thing I call like stage legs. You know, you go on stage, you go on stage, you go on stage, and then you get this confidence that just naturally happens from it. So I think the stage legs were first, where I was able to go up on stage and be really rock solid up there. And uh, I was still doing the material that was, you know, some, I'm proud of the material, some of it, and also some of it was very sophomoric. Uh, I even say it's freshmanic, which is one even <laughs> less, less mature than sophomoric. And, uh, you know, silly and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of wordplay, you know, all this, that kind of thing. Um, now I was able to tell stories. I, now that I had my stage legs, that I was comfortable up there, I could tell a story and if it didn't get a laugh, instead of freaking out, I just went on to the next thing. Like, so anyway, and the audience had no idea that, because I wasn't panicking. They didn't right. comfortable enough to go, hey, this person's interesting, they're telling me a story. It wasn't that funny, but, uh, oh, here's another one. Right. That kind of thing. Right. So do you, so you were never concerned, like, did you get premises for yourself and go up? Like, was it like, I'm going to talk about this or did you write and then really know it and go up or how that combination, work? combination. Like I love Carlin. So I wanted to come up with a thing with all these different animals, uh, cliches of uh, hungry as a horse, as quiet as a mouse. So I made a list of 45 of them. And I wrote a story using 17 of them and memorized it and told that on stage. That was one way of writing material. The other one was I would very early on had a guitar and would change the words to the song, which is an easy automatic. I mean, I did that in the sixth grade and it killed, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's gonna work. Um, but when I started taking chances, I would, you could see it in my face. I was so nervous that I was taking chances and little by little with my stage legs underneath me, I was able to sort of tell the stories with confidence. And it's only because I worked so much and I hustled to get on stage wherever. I go to open mic nights, I still go, go to open mic nights. And I watched Gaffigan and Attell mm. doing, you know, every open mic room in New York, working on wow. their material. They did, there was no ego about it, it was like, right. Only one to work yourself. stage time. I've always believed you can't teach stand-up. You either have it or you don't. But right. you can workshop it. You can have other people be your eyes and ears. <laughs> right. and say, hey, you know, when you held on to, like, like, for instance, Bill Burr is one of my favorite people in comics. And when he's on stage and he's holding on to the mic stand, I believe he's less effective than when he's on stage with a lavalier and just walking around controlling the stage. Mm -hmm. um, but right. you know, fuck me, I'm building <laughs> <laughs> what I think, you know what I mean? <laughs> Bill Burr is a, a really great comic and a great guy. Oh, but yeah, I yeah. really, like I've seen Bill do Letterman with a lavalier. And when I saw him do it, I thought how much more powerful he was instead of the stick shift thing he does where he grabs right. onto the mic stand. <laughs> sort of has that insecurity appearance like, you know, I used to host Monday Night at Caroline's for 14 years. And it was like 10 to 15 comics every night, kind of new comics, a couple of veterans on it. And you would see them hold on to the mic stand for dear life. And I would tell them, try to do it without holding on to the mic stand. Use your body, show some 
you know, show some confidence, show that you don't, you don't, but when you hold on to it, you're saying, I'm a little insecure and it's very subtle. Yes. And so those are little things you learn along the way. All right, here's what's controversial. Sitting, right. comics <laughs> who don't stand. I get people who hate that, that's lazy. Uh, other people are like, no, be yourself. I mean, I don't know if you have an opinion on that either way, but. You know what, I used to have an opinion and I used to think that was really lame. And, you know, but then, you know, Cosby as whatever he is, <laughs> as, a, as a human being yeah. is, he was one of the greatest comics of all time. He'd come out yes. and he'd sit down on a chair and he'd tell his stories and I would, I would go see him live, perform live for two and a half hours and laugh the whole time. But I always thought it was much more interesting to have movement. Like when Chris Rock is a gunslinger up on stage and he works yes. from one end of the stage to the other <laughs> and then stops and just shoots yes. the punchline at you kind of thing. And it's really powerful. But then I watched Stephen Wright and he's just standing in front of a microphone. I remember when we were young and Stephen Wright, he wouldn't even face the audience. He would face the back wall and play with the grout in the brick and the audience <laughs> was dying and they, he wasn't even facing them. Robert Schimmel, one of the most genius comics of all time that a lot of people don't know how what a genius he was. He never looked at anyone. He looked down on the ground and stood wow. in one spot pretty much. Wow. And you know, so everyone's different as long as you command what you're trying to do. Stephen but Wright, sitting I, down, to, I love but, Stephen Wright. Wow. Yeah. For that. You know, and he, you know, and there are, there are people who, you know, comedy subjective and some, one person likes Stephen Wright and another person likes Dane Cook and another person likes this comic or whatever. You know, you just, you know, I know who I like and, uh, and I, you know, there are certain people that just make me laugh um, for different reasons. Norm Macdonald, because mm -hmm. he's out of his mind. Oh, I love Norm Macdonald. You know, love. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> his bit, his closing bit on Letterman, you know, in the last episode, yeah. he did the thing on Germany. That was well written, but the performance of it was, do you know what I'm talking about? I do. I, I wish I it, knew. It's brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant. It's on YouTube. You should watch it. It's him talking about Germany. Yeah. Um, in World War II and World War I. And you'd think like, well, how do you make a joke out of that? But man, did he do it. <laughs> there, was a comic, there was a comic I knew years ago who decided to sit on a stool and like wear a scarf and change the whole thing. And it was so, you know. Emo Phillips? No, Emo Phillips is one of the most, the biggest geniuses of writing. Yeah, he was, he was never. I remember I was, wor I was working at the Boston and he was coming back around for some reason in the 90s. And his manager was like, oh, Emo wants to work out. Is it okay? I was like, hell yeah, it's okay. Where is he? <laughs> mm -hmm. But I remember how he, he was so different. It's just so strange, but he, his deliveries were pretty accurate. You know, like he And was, generous as hell, you know, to yeah. young comedians, yeah. giving, giving them his time and giving people opportunities. I'll yeah. tell you one of the greatest generous moments of my life. There was a club, uh, I forgot the name of it all of a sudden, it was like um, Rags to Riches on like 53rd Street in Manhattan. Really? It was kind of Rags a, to Riches? Yeah, it was a comedy club that didn't last long because the owner was kind of a douche. And, uh, <laughs> Seems like douchism doesn't work in New York. It, it goes, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it, it's a great word, douche. Douche. <laughs> Get guy, out of here. Get out of here. Douche. <laughs> <What a douche. laughs> you almost want to be a douche just to hear someone say it. <laughs> you know, so this, guy, this guy wasn't a very good club guy and he didn't really, you know, but it was a stage and it was nice and it was a nice room and I loved working there. And then there was a big audition that everyone was on and I was originally on it. And when the show started, the guy said, look, I have to bump you off the show. Um, you know, I got all these people and all this kind of stuff. And of course, you know, I had friends there and all that kind of stuff. And George Wallace, um, who I knew from LA, um, was on the show. It just, you know, he had a couple of veterans on the show as well. So George Wallace says, uh, so when are you going on? And I said, uh, a horrible impression of him, I stopped impressed doing the impression but he said what are you going on and i said um i was not going on the blah 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 this is not happening he goes okay he says just stick around watch my set so he goes up on stage and he goes up and he kills for like five minutes he goes ladies and gentlemen one of my favorite young comedians is out there on stage i want to bring him up on stage for him to do five minutes right now 
and he just brought me on stage. Wow. wow. That's so cool, man. <laughs> and grabbed the mic and said, ladies and gentlemen, I told you he's funny, right? And the audition, I actually got, you wow. know, got moved wow. up to the next part of the auditions because he didn't give a shit. He didn't know this guy and he was a big star. And But he, wow. put, he brought me up in the middle of a set. Wow. That wow. was the, so generous, the man. Generous moment I've ever seen in comedy. Wow. How'd you do? I mean, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I, well, you know, because I didn't know I was going on, I actually did all right. I was probably bombed horrifically. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. It's, it's funny because when I was um, opening up, when I came back into comedy after stopping for so long, I got to open for Sinbad. And I would mm. walk in with stacks of notes and he would see me looking at the notes and he would come over lock eyes and talk to me. And I'm like, I really got to get my head together, but he couldn't be rude. He's I'm his opener until they announce my name and on purpose to just stop me from, you know, overthinking and, and not having fun and enjoying the show. Mm. So it was just, it, it just, yeah. it, it turned out to, it really did teach you something to just yeah. get of the, get rid of the fear. And it's so good to be able to do that at will all the time, but it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Eddie, you Eddie, you look good, man. You working out? Um, you know, I'm, I'm walking. At the beginning of this thing, I was eating, you know, I'm a vegan, so I eat very healthy. Ah, yeah. Um, I still do that, but I was eating too much at the beginning of the coronavirus thing, and I was. <laughs> I think we were all Eddie. Yeah. I, I really. <laughs> no. Yeah. I'm glad it's only from here up. You know. <laughs> well, you look good, man. You look good. The last two, I, the I last really... two months, I've been back out walking a lot and and moving and grooving and can't go to the gym yet. And you know, do I remember I used to see you at Lafayette all the time. I love that gym. Yeah. And they took it away. Um, they closed it down, but that was the greatest gym. It was it, so good. It, yeah, it had everything, like a boxing ring, uh, everything in, at a gym needed, but they took, they closed it down. But they closed I it just, down. And all yeah. of the people from there moved downtown to Canal Street and opened up a, a, a kick, kickboxing oh, gym. Oh, really? So I you went telling down me something there. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't Five Points Fitness, they're called. They're great people. The same people from the gym. Oh, Five and, Points. Five where, the circle where the circle is. Yeah, yeah. Down a canal yeah. in Lafayette, and David yeah. Tell works out there too. David like, Tell works out. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> you know, us old people, we have to work out. You well, know, I know you work out, but I just said David Tell. Like that's impressive. Yeah. Okay. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I can't but, wait. Uh, yeah, Did it's you know, good. Like, when I get back into the city, because it's we're trying to we're working hard here trying to get some kind of deal or something happening because we're like, the prices are going to go down in Manhattan. We can finally come back. Buy something in here. <laughs> There's 13,000 apartments that are now available. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I'm going to get my yeah. landlord to, to bring mine down a little bit, but. Oh, I'm negotiating. So really, there. so rent in Manhattan is dropping. Oh, yeah, because there's so many vacant apartments right now. People wow. Are yeah, people Five are leaving. Eddie, I mean, the crime is up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, crime is up a little bit. I, I'm actually, when I first moved here, August 23rd, 1980, <laughs> wow, <laughs> I lived in a neighborhood that, you know, this neighborhood, the East Village, and I was, it was very dangerous. A lot of heroin dealers would be, or heroin addicts would be crashed out on the stoop in my building, and I would go, come home, and I would try to be scary looking myself. <laughs> <laughs> And so then all of a sudden it became gentrified and it's really, you know, the neighborhood's so nice and beautiful and crime is down completely. And then um, now lately I've been actually thinking twice, like I'm going out, I'm not going to take my phone. I'm just going to have <laughs> enough money on me just in case, you know, it's full circle. Yeah. It really is, you know, it, it's, it's funny. I'm actually in, think ahead. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually in Sonoma right now, wine country, because we're visiting a friend up here and there's fires. We, I'm in LA, but we got out of LA to relax in wine country where now there is 350,000 acres of land burning. But um, we, a friend of ours is a realtor out here and she said that everybody wants to move here. So prices in Sonoma, which was a little sleepy town, you know, wine country town, have, have doubled. So wow. more expensive in Sonoma than in Los wow. Angeles. Wow. Yeah, because wow. so yeah, because well, San Francisco has vacancies, LA, because everyone now is trying to get they out. Want of to the be city. out of the cities, yeah. yeah. 
Permanently. I love to be in New York, so I'm happy. I'm going to capitalize off of yeah, this. Yeah, me too. I can't wait to get back. I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for I'm just like, close a deal or something. I'm going back. And this is perfect. I, I'm used to crime. I grew up with, I can yeah. see you do crime. Yeah. No, not the kind of crime here, though. Not right now. It's like Gotham City. Well, people are desperate. You know, people don't yeah. have, people are out yeah. there with their kids and begging for money and they're yeah. people robbing people because there's no money you know it's a we have you know reverted into a world where people are not being taken care of or looked after and yeah. when there's no compassion there's a, a lack of integrity and a lack of respect for people and in turn people have to turn to feed their families and will do whatever it takes to do that yes. so yes. you know that's what our world is right now and hopefully yeah. that, that'll change Yes, I hope so. I hope so too. Well, thank you so much. Anybody else? Any any real questions? <laughs> anyone? Anyone? Would you be willing to spar with me if I came to New York? Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know that you box too, because I box, so that could be a whole like writers meeting. I can come. Oh yeah. Eddie, I need help. Well, I I, I want to put together a comics boxing thing. Anyway, ah. so but Eddie, I I do, I love you, Eddie, man. I I tell you something. I have so much respect for you and. I think you're one of the greatest people on the planet. Well, but you know it's mutual. We have had this thing between us as friends, and it's an unspoken and spoken. And it's you know, I'm I'm there for you. I mean, you know, of yeah, course yeah. I love Maya. I known Maya forever, and I adore her. And she makes me laugh really, really hard. And we got to work together a lot before the pandemic and everything, and hang out together. So you know, anytime you can help you know, is really good. And I'm really happy that I got to meet you other guys here. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, great, to great to meet you. We're sure. super excited about it. Cool. Thank, thank you for your time. Be safe. I'm, and I'm working my way back. Working my way back. back to you, babe. <laughs> I have a couch that many comedians have slept on. You know? Oh, fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. It's the Comedian Couch Exchange Program. <laughs> I love it. I'll be, I'll be reaching out to you. Thank you so much for your time. Good night, you guys. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.